I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, Florence Byham Weinberg, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg, is our host each and every week. And uh, she gets into some subjects that uh, just beautifully, uh, you know, mesh with, uh, with some other thinkers out there. But then she gets into some subjects that you're not going to get anywhere else but here. And I think today is one of those examples. And, you know, she is from San Antonio, for those who, who don't know, and, or, or just tuning in for the first time. And that is the home of five missions. And, and the very first one being the Alamo, of course. Uh, Frank McKay here. Much more importantly, Doc, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. And obviously you are doing well, too. You sound very hearty today. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, uh, th- things are well. And, well, how, how about this? You, you spoke yesterday to a group of folks. And, um, and, and give the, the folks, give the listeners a little something like you were, you were giving me. I mean, they, they wanted you to speak on one subject or wanted, and then you, you kind of, uh, you know, told them a subject you wanted to speak about. And that's the one that I think is, is unique in every possible way. I just don't know where anybody else would hear it other than here. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, the subject, they just wanted me to talk. Uh, I had given them three talks earlier on definite subjects. One of them I had talked about, uh, the latest book I published, which was The Choice, uh, about the religious wars in France in the 16th century. And uh, before that, I had given a talk on uh, the women who were in the Alamo during the Battle of the Alamo and how they survived and, and what they were doing during the battle and so on, and uh, I, I don't remember what the third subject was, but in any case, uh, they were sort of local subjects, and uh, this one started out as a local subject, but it expanded into something else entirely, and uh, so I told them when I got there, I, uh, when I, uh, the man uh, who was going to introduce me then came up to see what he could say about the talk. And uh, uh, and I told him it was going to wander uh, uh, across the Atlantic several times and come back. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so it was really not just about San Antonio. And he said, okay. Uh, I said, it's, it's going to be about a much larger subject than the missions in San Antonio. And uh, so he just gave me the open mic, and I went on from there, uh, actually ad-hocking, ad-libbing the talk, most of it. Uh, And I'm going to probably do the same thing today. Uh, So here we go. Yeah, very good. When I was hired in 1989 to be chairman of the Department of Languages at Trinity University, one of the first things they showed me was the missions here in San Antonio. San Antonio is uniquely known for the Alamo and the Battle of the Alamo, and people don't don't realize there's anything else to be known about this city. But actually, the city has five Franciscan missions, and I think that is unique in the world. There are, is no other place that has five Franciscan missions or five missions of any stripe in one place. 
And it is now, we are now a World Heritage Center uh, as of a couple of years ago. And the, the missions are all in good shape and ready for tourists to come visit them because they in themselves are very interesting. And when I saw those missions for the first time, I vowed that I would write a book about them, about their origin and why we have five missions in San Antonio. And when uh, I decided I would retire at age 65, so uh, th that was 1999, I, I used the mission idea as my retirement project. And I began doing research in the archive of uh, Our Lady of uh, Our Lady of the Lake University here in San Antonio, which had all of the correspondence of the Franciscan monks uh, beginning in the early uh, 18th century. Actually, the, the it was a Franciscan monk in 1618 who discovered. San Antonio, or discovered the site of San Antonio, he came across a massive spring uh, from which were, was bursting a great volume of water, which became the San Antonio River, and continues bursting forth, even though we have had this terrible uh, stretch of about 80 days of uh, over 100 degree temperatures and no rain. Uh, nonetheless, that spring has continued to uh, to flow, um, and he named the the area San Antonio because it was a feast day for San, Saint for the uh, Saint Saint Anthony of Padua, and so that's how we came for, by our name. But in any case, I went to work. I went to work researching uh, and reading the correspondence of the monks. With their uh, with their uh, uh, home uh, their home um, uh, towns, which was Querétaro and Zacatecas in Mexico, uh, and the book uh, appeared eventually called Apache Lance Franciscan Cross. But in order to write this book properly, I had a number of uh, of Indian important Indian characters other than the two uh, protagonists, one of which was a Franciscan uh, friar and the other one a, an Indian medicine woman. And I wanted uh, the Indian medicine woman to be doing her job uh, taking care of the missionaries and their cuts, bruises, and diseases, insect bites, and so forth, wound, uh, uh, serious wounds, etc. And I wanted her to be using authentic in Indian medicine. And uh, so uh, I asked the archivist if there were any sources of information about Indian herbal medicine in the archive. And she said, yes. Uh, do you know Ignaz Pfefferkorn? And I said, who? And she said, Ignaz Pfefferkorn. He was a Jesuit missionary in the 18th century. Uh, who uh, who served in three missions, um, and he wrote a book called, and he served in three missions in Sonora province, and he wrote a book simply called A Description of the Province of Sonora, in which he uh, covered all 
practically all of the natural sciences before those sciences had names even because they got them in the 19th century. And so he covered anthropology, uh, uh, anatomy, geography, uh, geology, uh, just about anything you can think of, botany, biology, and music, so forth. Music, and music too, right? He was an extremely clever man. Uh, he was a, an acute, detailed observer of, uh, of Sonora in all of its aspects. And he wrote, of course, among other things, about medicine, including the Indian herbal medicine, uh, practiced by the Pima Indians along the border, uh, which is now the border uh, between Sonora, uh, the state of Sonora in Mexico, and Arizona. And uh, I finished the book on the missions, on the coming of the missions, uh, three, two, two of which were founded in, in 1820, uh, 1720 and 1721. And three, the other three came in from East Texas, driven out from there by the Indians and the French. And uh, they came and settled here in San Antonio. They took refuge here actually, and set themselves up as missions because there were enough tribes uh, here in San Antonio, uh, some of them hostile to others. And so we needed more than uh, one or two missions. So two missions had already been established, and then the three came in, and uh, that was in 1731. So uh, in any case, uh, I, uh, I used this Pfefferkorn book for my book uh, and uh, felt confidence that I was being uh, using genuine material. But at the same time, there was a preface to that book, the description of the province of Sonora, um, which had been translated from the German by Theodor Treutlein. And Treutlein had written what he knew about Pfefferkorn's life. And he is the one who uh, said that he had served in two missions. He did not mention the third. And that in 1767, he and all the Jesuits in Sonora and Sinaloa provinces in those days, they are now Mexican states, that they had all been arrested and marched uh, across Mexico to Veracruz and sent back to Spain, which is uh, the, uh, their home, home uh, area. And these were Jesuit missionaries all, um, and in the, uh, and they were arrested because the king of Spain believed that they were plotting his assassination and a takeover of government. And a little historical background, the reason that he was able to be persuaded of that uh, was involved with the history of the Jesuits themselves. The Jesuits are the, probably the newest order uh, of the larger orders. There are probably some upstart orders that I don't even know about. But among the, the large and important orders of uh, priests and friars, uh, the Jesuits are the newest, and they were founded by Ignatius of Loyola, St. Ignatius, uh, in 1540, who took his little group 
of of acolytes of of, of disciples to Rome and approached the Pope uh, and uh, and asked to be incorporated as a society or as a group of of monks and his purpose was to reform the education system in Europe and to serve as missionaries. And the Pope said, okay, I will, uh, I will make you in, uh, I'll create the Society of Jesus under your leadership, but you must take a fourth vow. The three uh, vows are, of course, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And the fourth vow is, uh, is loyalty to the Pope. You have to be uh, very close to the Pope and to do his bidding. And so they agreed to do that. And so the Jesuits to this day take a fourth vow. And then they went out into uh, all of uh, what I know about mainly is France because uh, Loyola had taken his degree uh, from the Sorbonne. And uh, and they, uh, they spread out. Some of them became teachers and they taught others and they actually reformed European education. And the curriculum that we still still have remnants of, although we are doing our best to betray the, that curriculum that I went through as a student when I was young, and I think uh, you, Frank, also uh, learned uh, reading, writing, and math, yep. uh, and, and other subjects, history, and so forth. Uh, and the Jesuits were the ones who established that as a curriculum. And uh, instead of beating students, which was the favorite ev uh, <laughs> way of disciplining yeah. in the old days, uh, if you didn't, if you came in without having finished your lesson, you got beaten. And if you couldn't learn it for some reason, uh, you got beaten, and so on. And the Jesuits stopped that. <laughs> Uh, they they were strict teachers, but they were kind teachers, and they uh, they uh, established the tradition that kindness, strict kindness, but kindness uh, is the way to discipline and also to make people want to learn rather than to learn out of fear. And uh, so the, this European system was uh, transformed by the Jesuits. And the others, uh, the other uh, group of Jesuits went abroad uh, in all, all directions. They went east uh, to India and China and Japan, and they went west to the New World. And this man, who Ignaz Pfefferkorn, who had written a book about Sonora, was one of those. He was born in 1725 or 26. There is a controversy about that. Uh, on the 31st of July, and that was uh, St. Ignatius's feast day. And so uh, he was named Wilhelm Ignaz Pfefferkorn. And um, Pfefferkorn is, of course, the word for peppercorn. And he was descended from a, an original uh, Jew who came uh, driven out of Spain or Portugal 
uh, probably Spain, by Ferdinand and Isabella uh, in, in 1492. And uh, the Jews then, uh, many of them, uh, a horde of them really came north and came through uh, Holland and were named by the immigration officials in Germany. And if they had money uh, and, uh, and uh, promised to contribute to the economy in Germany, they got good names. And Weinberg is one of those good names. It means vineyard. Yeah. Uh, but Pfefferkorn was a, a comic name that was given to someone who was poor <laughs> oh and gosh. would have no influence, and therefore he was allowed to come in, but he was also uh, tagged with this comic name, oh which then became rather prominent in, uh, in, in Germany, and I'll get around to where and so on in, in a little while. So Pfefferkorn uh, then, he, he was orphaned. His um, father died when he was 11. His father was a judge in uh, Mannheim, very important. Uh, and his, uh, uh, his mother then died in, uh, uh, when he was 14. And when he was 17, uh, he was sent to Trier, uh, which was Charlemagne's uh, headquarters, and is, uh, where the Jesuits had a, uh, a novitiate, and he was put through the rigors of the Jesuits at that time and became a priest in 1755. And almost immediately he uh, decided he wanted to come to the New World as a missionary, and he embarked on uh, a ship to the New World on Christmas Day, 1755, and arrived at Veracruz after a brief stop in Cuba. And then, and he came with three companions who uh, were all fellow Jesuits, and uh, the, the four of them then got horses and mules. They were provided by the Jesuits in Veracruz. Uh, and they rode across all of Mexico, th uh, through the mountains to Puebla, and then to Mexico City, and then on northward. And they uh, they split up and went into different uh, missions that had already been established, just barely, but that needed new uh, new uh, priests to lead them. And Pfefferkorn was sent to the farthest corner of what is now Mexico in Sonora. So it's right up there against the uh, California border. And the place was called Sonoita. And there had been a, a revolt of the Pima Indians, and they had uh, ravaged, they had uh, killed uh, the, uh, the priest and had left his, his corpse unburied. And Pfefferkorn uh, found this situation. Of course, no one knew about it. Uh, at least the official them didn't know. And so they had sent him there, thinking it, it was a going mission, and it, it was in ruins. Of course, had the uh, buildings had been burned to the ground, and the uh, corpse of the uh, of Father Ruin, the priest R U H E N, had lain there for about five years. Uh, and of course, his bones were probably picked uh, pretty, uh, pretty clean by 
uh, coyotes and uh, and vultures and so anyway he gave uh, father ruin a, a proper burial but then he and his military escort got out of there um, because they were afraid they would be attacked again and went to another nearby and i say nearby it's probably 200 miles away uh, which was called Ati at the time, and is now called Atil, with an L on the end. And there they were welcomed, and he stayed there as they also needed a, uh, a priest. They were priestless for the moment. And so he took over that mission and, uh, and taught there for uh, five years and had a good success. He was building the, uh, the Indian population. He was successful in his teaching. And the good thing, uh, the, the Bishop of Durango, when he rated the various missionaries, there were uh, Jesuits in the West, uh, Sonora, Sinaloa, and what is now California, all were under the uh, aegis of the Jesuits. And then the uh, farther east it was were the Franciscans, and that's why uh, San Antonio was a Franciscan uh, bailiwick town, um, and uh, and so forth. And the Augustinians were in there somewhere also. Um, but in any case, uh, after five years of successful uh, missionary work in Ati. Uh, he caught malaria, sad to say, and uh, uh, he was reassigned, and I discovered that this because uh, Troitline, who, who was my only source of information about Pfefferkorn at the time, Troitline had not mentioned that he was at another mission, and the mission was in what is now Arizona, and it's called uh, the place is now called Tumacacuri. Tumacacuri is a national monument, uh, and the, the uh, church there was built by the Franciscans. And the original mission was called Gevavi, spelled G-U-E-V-A-V-I, uh, and it was an adobe structure. And by now, it's almost completely obliterated. It's just a pile of of adobe dirt now uh, when i visited it at t uh, 20 years ago 20 more more than 20 um 21 years ago uh it, there were still some walls left but by now i just saw a contemporary picture and there's nothing but a mound of dirt there uh, but in any case that's where he was but he was ill most of that time, and also uh, there is some sort of uh, rumor that he uh, was moved out of there because he was not uh, acting as missionary according to Hoyle. There was something that he was doing that uh, displeased the authorities, but I have been unable to find out what that was. But um, anyway, from there he moved, uh, he was ill enough that they moved him to a rest mission, which was called Oposura, south of there, and he remained there for a year and then was reassigned to Kukurpe, which is still uh, a, a town, and the ruins of the Jesuit mission are there, and they're very beautiful ruins with an arched uh, 
arched uh, skeleton of a church with uh, with Gothic arches and and so on. And um, and anyway, then he was there. He was building. He was teaching. He was very successful and much beloved by the people there. Uh, when he was arrested in uh, in 1767, and all of the missionaries in Sonora and Sinaloa were arrested along with him. Uh, they were marched on foot across uh, Sonora and up from Sinaloa and were uh, gathered in the Matape uh, Auditorium, or it was no doubt the church. Uh, there was a college there at the time, uh, and it was announced to them that the King of Spain had ordered them to be arrested on suspicion of treason. And it, uh, and it turned out that actually they were arrested and held forever uh, until most of them died in prison um, because they were thought to have stolen the gold of the, uh, of the uh, Sonora mines and that they had hoarded it somewhere and the king wanted it back. And of course, they had no idea uh, about the gold of the Sonora mines, except that they were trying to teach the Indians uh, enough. They were teaching them how to read and how to write and how to figure. So they were teaching them the curriculum, uh, and they were having success with it because they did not want the Indians to be taken as slaves to work, be worked to death in the gold mines and silver mines of Mexico. Uh, so that was their only connection with the mines. So in any case, uh, they were then, uh, they were marched to Guaymas, which is now a, a prosperous city on the coast of the, uh, of the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, the, uh, it, it's also, um, Let's see, it's the Gulf of Cortes in Spanish, but it's that body of water between Baja California and, and California and Mexico. Uh, and there they waited for transportation for one year without any supplies being brought into them. There was a barracks. The only building down there was a barracks at the time. And they lived there. Uh, without food or, or water, the water supply was brackish. In other words, it was salty and probably smelled bad as well. Uh, but they survived on that and whatever they could scrounge in the neighborhood. And they were at the seacoast, so I'm sure they dug for clams and, and uh, used whatever uh, native plants they knew about. And they did know a good deal, so they could exploit uh, Prickly pear, for instance, which is edible, and its fruit, of course, is, is edible, and there are other plants as well. So uh, there were, all in all, there were 51 uh, missionaries, and uh, that was the number that was finally transported south. And it took three months for the leaky and unseaworthy ship to get to San Blas, which is a, a village on the coast. And there they were disembarked. Uh, they had been locked under uh, below decks 
in, in an area that was uh, too low for them even to kneel upright. So they had been for three months locked in those conditions. And God only knows what they were fed to keep them alive. But in any case, the survivors, um, most of them in any case, were disembarked in San Blas. And then they were marched by mounted uh, Mexican soldiers on horseback and they on foot uh, across the swamps at San Blas, which were infested with leeches, uh, all kinds of insects biting the um, biting insects and alligators and so on, and uh, um, and malaria mosquitoes, naturally. Uh, and then they were on the road to Guadalajara on foot. And uh, they were sick. Uh, they were star had been starving, and they began to fall. Uh, without They were ab not able to walk anymore, so they were falling down. And the soldiers would beat them. And if, when the uh, beating became intolerable, they would stand up and stagger all again. But uh, many of them simply couldn't get up, and so they were abandoned along the road and died. Uh, so when they got, the remnants got to Guadalajara, there were 29 of them out of the 51. And they kept them there for a little while so that they could recuperate a little bit, and then they were taken by by wagon further down to Greta Cruz. And, uh, and two of them died uh, there of yellow fever because Greta Cruz in those days certainly had uh, no protection against mosquitoes and, and the water was uh, untrustworthy in places. And so two more died. And then the ship Aventurier, was the French name for adventurer, uh, was waiting for them, and again, they were locked below decks and taken, I think it took them two or three weeks to get back to Spain. And their, uh, their headquarters had been in Puerto de Santa Maria, which is the, the uh, uh, port of Cadiz. And there they had had their, uh, their, their, their house, their uh, their headquarters, and uh, so they were locked in that. Um, there were 40 Jesuits uh, in locked in those in in the, that house together, uh, and of course again uh, not fed properly. And they were uh, the the Sonora Jesuits were interrogated uh, as to where was the gold of the Sonora mines. Uh, and of course, again, they could not answer it, so they were beaten and tortured, no doubt. Um, and uh, uh, the other Jesuits, uh, I should have, I should say that uh, there, uh, only 21 of them of the 29 managed to stagger out of that ship uh, when it finally docked at Puerto de Santa Maria. So the rest of them had died at sea and were thrown overboard. And so that's what happened to the Jesuits from Sonora and Sinaloa. Uh, the Jesuits in general, uh, in uh, the order from the king went out in uh, uh, 17, uh, well, I have said this, 1767, and was enacted in April. And so in April, all of the Jesuits who were still in Spain 
were marched down to the Mediterranean and loaded on any ship that could, or any boat that could uh, it could float, and told to go back to uh, to Rome. And what had happened? The reason why the king had decided to uh, exile them. The king of Spain was feeble-minded. It was Charles III, Carlos III. Uh, and uh, he was easily persuaded, although he had been pro-Jesuit before, that the Jesuits were indeed plotting to assassinate him. Because what had happened in Portugal in 1764, the king of Portugal, who was Juan Primero, uh, John I, uh, had gone to see his mistress one night, and on his way back in his coach, he was fired upon and wounded. And the uh, uh, the uh, prime minister told him that it was the Jesuits who had attempt made an attempt on his life because they were plotting to take over the government. Uh, in fact, they were plotting worldwide to take over governments, the governments in Europe, and uh, and rule uh, all of the nations of Europe. At least that was the rumor they uh, they had told him. And so he exiled the 2,000 Jesuits who were in Portugal at the time, and sent them back to Rome. And Rome could not house a sudden influx of 2,000 Jesuits. And so when the 6,000 who were in Spain were uh, put on boats and sent to Rome, the Pope simply closed all the ports, the ports of entry, so the ships could not land. And so those ships with the Jesuits aboard went from one port to another port, and they died of thirst and starvation and were thrown overboard. So the floor of the Mediterranean along that coast is paved with Jesuit bones. So most of them died, and uh, probably a few hundred, I know that 500 uh, survived and probably a few more, and they landed on Cyprus, which accepted them, even though Cyprus uh, couldn't handle that many men all of a sudden. But uh, they were at least taken in and uh, given some fresh water and uh, and a little food. And the prince of Genoa decided that he would allow the survivors to cross, not to stay in Genoa, but, uh, but to cross Italy and go uh, in, home, wherever their homes had been. And so they, uh, they did so. And they, uh, some of them went to Prussia, which was uh, Friedrich the Great was, uh, was king of Prussia. Uh, and he put them to work in his universities. And they went to, uh, to Russia. And the empress of Russia uh, took them in and put them to work in her universities. And she wrote to the Pope saying, you have slaughtered the intelligentsia of Europe and now at least I am profiting from their expertise, and Russia will be all the greater, thanks to your idiocy. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that was what happened to the majority of Jesuits. There were very few of them left. Um, and, but in any case, the ones from Sonora were simply kept 
prisoner and the other ones were uh, were freed to do whatever they could because they were no longer they were simple priests but they had no uh, there was no central government anymore uh, of the Jesuits and so they had no uh, way of making a living uh, so they went home and were sort of at loose ends I suspect um, uh, in France, some of them went underground under a different uh, name. They they named themselves something else uh, and managed to survive. But uh, but the uh, the ones that had, were collected in Spain simply uh, simply had to go and uh, make a living however they could. Maybe they became carpenters or something else. Who knows? Uh, but in any case, the, the Sonora ones were kept and interrogated. And the king decided that since they were together in that uh, building, in that uh, uh, erstwhile headquarter building, uh, they were able to talk to each other, and so therefore they must be conspiring together. And he decided that he would separate them and send them to separate monasteries. And uh, and they would therefore be uh, they would be uh, incapable of conspiring with anybody because they'd be isolated. And uh, Pfeffercorn was sent uh, to the monastery of Our Lady of Charity in Ciudad Rodrigo, which is a medieval walled city uh, about 60 miles west, due west of uh, Salamanca. So uh, that's where Pfefferkorn uh, ended up in 1755. He was sent up there by coach and stayed there for two years. And uh, that was the only thing I knew about Pfefferkorn. Um, I had meanwhile uh, had written two books about his service in uh uh, in uh, Gevadi and in Kukurpe. Uh, and the, the one I wrote first was uh, called Sonora Wind, and it was it included the expulsion, the arrest and expulsion. And I wanted to get that news out, and that became my uh, my cause célèbre, so to speak. I, I, I became passionate about telling the public that the Jesuits had suffered terribly and had practically been annihilated um, by, uh, by jealousy because the Jesuits, the Jesuits were not uh, cloistered. They were not cloistered monks. They were free to be out in public and uh, among normal people uh, as priests, of course, but, but mainly they were, they were teaching. And of course, if they went abroad, they were missionaries. Uh, they were so they weren't cooped up like most uh, of the orders. Well, the Pope decided. Uh, well, first of all, of course, um, people, uh, the uh, the wealthy people, wanted their sons to uh, to have as normal a life as possible, and so they. Uh, May, they sent them to the Jesuits for their education and for their the rest of their lives. Uh, and so they were getting the cream of the crop of available young men. And so other, uh, other orders became jealous of them, envious. And so they were hostile to the Jesuits because they were 
uh, and of course the Jesuits came, were coming from these, uh, let's say they were coming from wealthy uh, bourgeois families, in other words, business-minded people. And so they got in, uh, involved in business uh, policy, and, and particularly if they were confessors, and of course, being of wealthy families, notable families, they were chosen by kings and queens and nobles to be their confessors. And so, and they were also extremely well educated, and so they were guiding uh, national policy. And the, the politicians were furious at the Jesuits because they were, indeed, they were taking over the government, but only as advisors to, uh, to the, uh, the people, the king, who would confess to them and confide his, his uh, difficulties, his political difficulties. And so they were getting involved in that and advising them in policy uh, and uh, national policy and direction and so forth. And keeping them out of out of wars and, and that sort of thing. So the Marquis de Pombal, who was the prime minister of the of Charles III, is the one who told him that they were plotting to assassinate him and take over the government. And the gullible, uh, feeble-minded Carlos believed him. And therefore, the Jesuits were driven out of existence because in, uh, in 1773, uh, Pope Clement, uh, who was a Franciscan, uh, and who was a political appointee, by the way, um, he uh, owed his papacy to special interests and so on and corruption. Uh, and so he was very persuadable to suppress the society altogether. And so in 1773, then, the, the, uh, the king of Spain had, didn't have the power to annihilate the, the, uh, the Jesuits, but the pope did. And so he suppressed the society. It went out of existence in 1773 and remained out of existence until another pope in 1814 uh, brought them back into, uh, into this world. And the Jesuits during the 19th century were so frightened uh, that they would be uh, annihilated again, that they were overly obedient to the Pope and therefore got the reputation of being pretty nasty, uh, very right-wing. And uh, only in the 20th century uh, did they start um, branching out and, and doing things like proving that uh, with Tayar the Chardin in the 20th century, uh, they, uh, he proved, he went to China and did uh, archaeological research and proved that there were proto-human beings there uh, a millennia ago. And uh, so, uh, and he, uh, he intended to publish his work. The Jesuits, however, fearing the uh, papal wrath, told him that, they, that he could not. But his sister, then, who did not have a, a vow of obedience to the Pope or any other, she was a, a simple citizen, she published his work. And so Tayyad de Chardin became very famous as an authority on, um, on evolution in the early 20th century. Wow. And the, from then on, the Jesuits branched out into sciences. Uh, and for instance, the, uh, the chief who is running the uh, the head uh, of uh, 
of the astronomers running our uh, Texas uh, uh, state observatory no. yeah. uh, is a Jesuit. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> and, <laughs> and we now have a pope. And, of course, the Jesuits all fainted when <laughs> when Pope Francis was, was named pope because of the— uh, the Jesuits have always been sort of whipping boys for the uh, for the other orders, and their particular enemy had always been the the uh, order that ran the Inquisition, which was the Dominican order. Uh, the Dominicans uh, are rival uh, scholars. They are all they and the Benedictines are very scholarly, and they are teachers. A lot of them. Uh, and so forth, but uh, they are the hereditary enemies of the Jesuits. Uh, they claim not to be any longer, but uh, that is the history of it. And uh, the Inquisition of France and Spain uh, undoubtedly burned a number of Jesuits for heresy, in quotes, uh, during the day. Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, I wanted to publicize uh, what had happened to the Jesuits, um, because nobody knew about it. And uh, I don't know whether you knew about it, Frank, did you? No, I, I didn't know any of this. And, uh, I, you know, the the first I heard of Fepicon was when you started telling me, and, and he was a larger-than-life figure to me by uh, just your description. And you wrote yeah. historic novels on, historical novels on, on Fefecon, and as you were saying all of these things that uh, that he was, all of these expertise and all of these this knowledge that he had, uh, you know, I was saying in there uh, music, but then I stopped to think, did you just add music to him? Do we know that Fefecon uh, had musical ability, or was that something that you added into his profile no, as uh, a character? No. Uh, when he... When he got to, uh, uh, he ran uh, from Sonoita, where uh, the Pima revolt had uh, destroyed the mission and killed the missionary after he had buried the, the unburied corpse of this priest's ruin. Uh, he went uh, to Ati, and the Indians had the Indians hid themselves. They were afraid of him, and they were afraid of the soldiers because of the Pima revolt, which was, uh, and they thought they were going to be punished. Um, but he sent the soldiers away. So there he was, isolated. I mean, this guy was an amazing person. He was so courageous. Uh, he, he he sent the soldiers away. And that night, he feeling a little lonely, he got out his violin. He was an accomplished violinist. Ah, wow. Uh, his fellow Jesuit, with, when he had, with uh, one of the three that had come with him, wrote about this incident, or I probably would never have known about it, but he too wrote, wrote uh, a, an autobiographical uh, piece, which is very interesting. I should write a book about him too. <laughs> but in any <laughs> case, he told this story that uh, Fifferkorn, feeling, feeling lonely and probably a little apprehensive, got his violin out and started playing it. And he heard rustling noises from outside, and he looked out of the rectory window, and there were the Indians dancing. They were standing uh, as close as they could get to the window, and they were uh, uh, moving their bodies in rhythm with his music. 
and they had all come out. Wow. <laughs> they had all come out, and they wow. wanted to know. Uh, they then, of course, stroked the violin and wanted to know what animal lived in this uh, this box that had such a an heavenly voice. Wow. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so he he told them no that it was it was a vibration with uh, with the bow on the box that that uh, and the strings that were uh, ac across the box that made the sound and so they they all then uh, they became friendly uh, and so he had his great success thanks to his musical ability so he was indeed a musician Amazing, uh, Renaissance man, you know, and uh, you know of his time, uh, the equivalent of a Renaissance man. Yes, yeah. Amazing. So, so to go on a little bit more with this story. Um, so anyway, I uh, uh, I went to Mexico. I did research in Mexico uh, to write the two first books. The first, uh, the first one I wrote was Sonora Wind, which was actually, uh, chronologically speaking, the second book, because I wrote another one right after that on Gavadi. And I imagined, uh, I used what information I could uh, that I came across, which was very little, uh, but I imagined uh, what it must have been like there in Gavadi, because at least I knew, I knew the environment. And I went to Cucurpe also, and so I knew what the environment was there also. And so I recreated that. And all of the names of people involved, I, of course, knew that and uh, used them. Uh, and uh, then I decided that I would write about uh, his imprisonment in Spain, which entailed going to Spain. And fortunately, uh, about that time, uh, I, uh, my husband had died in, in 1996 of Parkinson's disease, and uh, in 1998, his very best friend, Ralph Friedman, who was a retired professor from Princeton University and head of the comparative literature department there, uh, Ralph proposed marriage to me. His wife had died mm. a, a year before that of cancer. And so we were both, he was a widower and I was a, a widow, uh, and he thought it would be a good idea if we married. And uh, so two years or so, we played with that idea. But uh, he then, his son, uh, Mark Friedman, who uh, was working for uh, the Boston Consulting Group, and he was, uh, he was the CEO in Paris at the time. And of course, he had uh, he had a family, and he had uh, very nice quarters. Um, part of the time, he was uh, he had bought a uh, a mansion, a chateau, uh, in a suburb. And in, in any case, Court uh, Ralph and I, Ralph being uh, the uh, the friend who was my prospective husband at the time, uh, Ralph and I would stay with. Um, with Mark and family when we went there. And then from there, uh, I went on to, uh, I went alone. No, actually, I did not. I took Ralph that first, uh, that first trip. Uh, and I decided the only thing I knew uh, from Troitline 
from the uh, the preface, the translator's preface to Pfefferkorn's book was that he was imprisoned in the monastery of St. Norbert in Ciudad Rodrigo. And uh, I, um, uh, so we, I, we went to, I think we must have gone, we must have flown in. Yeah, we did. We flew from Paris to Madrid. And then I rented a car and we drove up partly uh, touring and partly um, to uh, know what the country was like. Uh, and I had spent a year in, in uh, Spain already. I spoke uh, very fine, very good, uh, eloquent uh, Spanish, so I could uh, get along extremely well. Uh, and we went through Segovia and Avila and then uh, uh, Salamanca, which was especially uh, interesting. And there is a Jesuit street there named named for the Jesuits, and that was never uh, the name of the street stayed when the Jesuits were uh, were non-existent. But uh, in, in any case, we got to Ciudad Rodrigo, and uh, the city is a tourist attraction. It is a walled city like Avila, but the walls are probably about 40 feet thick, and they are, uh, I imagine, 13th century or so, or maybe earlier. And the, the entrances to the city are tunnels. And so we drove our car through the tunnel and came out uh, next to the cathedral there. And, uh, uh, and uh, a plaza surrounded by lordly buildings. And in the plaza were tourist buses. And hundreds of people were, were uh, wandering around there. Uh, so obviously the place was full of tourists. But uh, I wanted to go to the monastery of St. Norbert because that's the only thing I knew. And I thought maybe they would have some records uh, of Pfefferkorn's being there. So first of all, we needed a hotel. So the two of us went over to the Hotel Rodrigo and walked in and asked if there was a room. And we were very curtly told, no, there's no room. And uh, I then said, well, is there another hotel here in the city? And he said, there is La Posada, but it's full too. And I said, is there any other uh, opportunity to, uh, to stay overnight here? And he said, well, there is a motel. You have to go out of the walls and down, down the hill and cross the old Roman bridge and get on the highway. Turn left and there's a windmill and, uh, <laughs> and so forth. Uh, and it's about, um, you know, it's about four miles away. And I thought, oh, boy, uh, I need to be here in the city. So I said, okay, well, let's go and see if La Posada has any uh, rooms by any chance. So we went up there. It walked. It was within walking distance. And there were Bentleys and Rolls Royces and Ferraris and so on uh, strewn around and a few uh, a few lowly Mercedes, and, uh, I, I said to Ralph, uh, it'll probably cost us five, $500 a night minimum if they do have a room. And we walked in, asked, and they said, no, no, no room. So the, uh, we went back to the Hotel Rodrigo, and just on the off chance, I said to the 
to the man at the uh, counter, I said, uh, by the way, I am not a tourist. I am a researcher, and I am trying to establish some of the facts about a prisoner who was in the monastery here. And uh, so I really do need to stay because I'm doing this research. And he was a Jesuit who was, was here for at least two years, that much I know. And he stood up straight and his eyes got big and he said, a Jesuit? And I said, yes, a Jesuit. And I thought, oh boy, he's gonna throw us out. And, <laughs> and uh, he, instead he said, well, as a matter of fact, we do have a room. And I said, hello, are you there? Of course. Good, okay. Yes, there was some noise, and I thought maybe the no. connection had No, had no, failed. please, keep going. This is fast. Okay. So uh, it turned out to be the penthouse. <laughs> so <laughs> we were up high, high enough that we could take pictures of the entire city from there. Um, because it was uh, it was high enough, and we were right next to the, the cathedral, uh, too, so we could take pictures of it from that perspective. So I have all those uh, I have all those records, uh, the uh, films that I took while there. But in any case, uh, we went back down. We dropped our suitcases and went back down. And I said, uh, "Okay, where is the monastery of Saint Norbert?" Because that's what Troitline had called it. He said, we don't have a monastery of St. Norbert. And I said, oh, no, uh, maybe this whole thing is a mistake, and we came here for nothing. Uh, but he, he then said, well, we do have a monastery. It's uh, our, our Lady of Charity, Nuestra Señora de la Caridad. And he said, it's uh, nine kilometers outside of town. And you can find out about it from, you'll have need to go to the Episcopal Palace, which is right next door here, uh, and uh, ask the archivist there. But don't go before 10 o'clock, because he teaches in the seminary, which is on the other side of the hotel. Uh, and he likes to sit with his students and have coffee after he finishes the lecture. So he may not be uh, at the archive promptly at 10 o'clock. And I said, uh, you mean I can go into the Episcopal Palace, me, a woman? And he said, well, of course. Uh, some uh, priest will, will greet you at the door and guide you into the archive. So sure enough, the next morning I went uh, and was guided uh, up the stairs to the archive, which was on the second floor of the Episcopal Palace. And sure enough, the archivist hadn't gotten there yet. And when he came, he was a small man, probably about five four, five five, um, and in, in a uh, his black sutan, his robe uh, that buttoned all the way down from neck to to toe, uh, and a very busy little bird-like person. And I, so I told him what I needed, that I needed to know uh, um, about this man, Ignaz Feverkorn. Uh, who had uh, been uh, imprisoned there in uh, in the monastery of Our Lady of Charity. And he said, oh, just a moment, I'll go get the becerro. And the becerro, uh, that word means calf. <laughs> I said, the calf? <laughs> and he said, 
He said, oh, yes. He said, it's a huge tome, uh, which was all written all, of course, the records were written every day by a, a, uh, a monk by hand. Uh, and uh, it's right here in the archive, and I'll go get it. So she did. And it was probably about uh, 20 inches uh, long, this uh uh, in one one dimension and uh, eighteen uh, the other way, and about I'd say six six to eight inches thick. So, but it was fortunately very carefully uh, written in a usually very readable uh, hand, um, and in in Spanish, not in Latin. Uh, if it had been Latin, I could have made it out, but it's easier in Spanish, of course, even. Uh, even 18th century Spanish, um, and uh, uh, of course I could just open it to the date, uh, 1775, and there there were entries there about uh, Ignacio Fercon, P-F-E-R-K-O-N, and that's how the Spaniards uh, interpreted the word Fercon. And I knew who it was. It had to be him. Uh, and the Spaniards don't have a PF in any uh, for anything no. unless it's a borrowed word. So it had to be Fevercorn. And so I then uh, I had a pencil and a pad of paper, and I copied copied out all of those entries, which were mainly concerned with the cost of maintaining the man. What what it would cost to feed him and clothe him, um, and uh, very little about him as a human being. Uh, but at least it proved he was there. So then I asked the archivist, "Okay, where? How do I get to this monastery?" And he said, "Well, it's privately owned, and uh, it has been since 1840, when the Queen Isabella, uh, who had to fight a war." <clears throat> called the it was the Carlist War, and it was uh, between her. She was the actual heir to the throne, but she was female. And since the French dynasty Bourbon, the Bourbons had taken over uh, when the Habsburgs had died out in 1700. Um, they <clears throat> they held the um, they they kept the Salic Law, which uh, decrees that no female. Uh, can succeed to the throne. That's why there have been never have been any French queens, um, because as everybody knows, women are incapable of, you know, they don't have minds. Um, they are incapable of doing anything like ruling Jeez. a country. So, right. My God. Uh, so she had to fight a war in order to get the throne, because Isabella had been a very capable queen. Of uh, of uh, Castile of Castilla, um, but uh, the Bourbons didn't uh, didn't know about that. So, but anyway, she won the war, but she had to to uh, take over monasteries and convents and sell them to the to wealthy noblemen uh, in order to finance her uh, her battle and to uh, to make good after the war, so that she could set herself up as the the queen of uh, of spain and so that's when the uh, the monastery of our lady of charity uh, went to a wealthy uh, bourgeois family who, who still owned it 
Well, and they were not there. They didn't live there. They lived in Druid. But there was a caretaker. So anyway, he told me very complicated directions how to get there. And the, there was a, a, a client in the archive when I got there who just spoke up and said, oh, no. Uh, the archivist bustled away, and he said, don't pay attention to what he said. All you have to do is go out the, the entrance next to the cathedral, follow that road down to its dead end, then take the uh, take uh, return right on that road and follow it, and it will take you to. <laughs> so all you have to do is one, one turn. Uh, when this road uh, comes to an end, turn right, and uh, eventually you'll get to the uh, to the monastery, which we did. And we got uh, the door to, it was an enormous, a very large uh, walled uh, precinct with a uh, cathedral-like structure uh, in there. Uh, you could see the tower of that, and you could see that storks were flying around it. And uh, uh, anyway, I... Uh, on a later trip, I uh, picked up a stork wing feather that was lying on the ground, and it is over a foot long, one single feather. Uh, so uh, those birds are enormous, so you can see them from a distance. Yeah. In any case, uh, we stopped by the entrance gate, a uh, very ornate Baroque uh, gate, um, but it had a, a padlock on it, so we went on, and uh, the, there was a road going around the corner of, of the wall. Um, and so we turned off the highway onto that and uh, drove down. There was another gate, and it was open um, about 18 inches, and so the two of us slipped in there. And... Um, and I was taking pictures of what I could see uh, from that angle when the guard dogs came after us. And they were large, um, uh, sort of German police-like dogs, and I knew they meant business. So we quickly uh, left, um, slipped back out of that gate before we got bitten. And, uh, and that was it, because we had to fly home the next day. But I made successive trips there, and on the next trip, uh, the uh, I found the, the caretaker, uh, and he took us through, uh, and I took pictures of every corner of that monastery so I could uh, write the third book on Pfefferkorn, which is called The Storks of La Caridad, uh, which is probably the best of the three books. Um, and it, it contains information uh, in case somebody wants to read one book about Ignaz Pfefferkorn, that would be it, um, at, at least about his uh, missionary work and his life as uh, as an ex-Jesuit. Uh, and they, he was called, uh, in uh, whenever his name was mentioned, he was always, it was always prefaced by the ex-Jesuit um, Ignacio Ferkon. Um, so anyway... So that was the, the, uh, the Spanish language uh, uh, part of my writing about Pfefferkorn. And I'll conclude by saying that uh, I decided I would, uh, he was released thanks to 
um, his sister found out, his sister in Germany, uh, one, one of the, th uh, the, the uh, three companions that went to Sonora along with him uh, was released from prison, Spanish prison, by Maria Teresa, who was emperor of Austria at the time. Obviously, these men were well-connected. And uh, he went, he promised Ignaz that he would go to uh, Germany and tell his sister where he was. And he did that. He was a really good friend. Considering travel and its difficulties in those days, he went from Spain to Germany and found her and told her about uh, her, her brother, where, where he was. And she went to Maximilian Friedrich, who was the elector of Cologne, uh, just downriver because uh, she was on the line and, uh, and very well, do, well to do, as I found out later. But anyway, she went to, directly to the elector, who is the prince uh, of, of Cologne, and told him that she wanted her brother released. And he wrote to the king of Spain, who was still Carlos, uh, and told him that he was going to close the port to Spanish commerce unless he, unless he released Ignaz Pfefferkorn. And so Carlos released him. And he, he, uh, he was taken by coach to Irun, which is on the border um, of uh, Spain with France, and dropped there. And my book about uh, about his the end of his life, and and he lived uh, until 98, 19, uh, 1798, uh, and he wrote his book on Sonora uh, during that time and published it in Cologne. And uh, when I went to Germany with Ralph, still. Uh, and of course, he then could help me because my German at the time. Uh, I could speak German, but I was uh, was rusty, and so I became fluent in German during uh, doing for do, while I was doing research on this, to the point that I gave a lecture on Pfefferkorn uh, in one of his hometowns, which is Siegburg, um, uh, later on. So he became vicar of the church, a little church in Onkel, which was uh, the sort of summer. Uh, getaway for wealthy people from Cologne because the Rhine there is lined with palaces, one of which is now the Hotel Schultz, <laughs> which is like uh, calling a, 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 a palace uh, the Hotel uh, Smith uh, or right. Jones. <laughs> but, but in any case, uh, so uh, I, we had the run of that hotel, so we could uh, see the lordly rooms and so on, which are now the uh, the restaurant and the reception hall and so on and so forth. Uh, and so uh, in any case, uh, I was able to reestablish his life as vicar of the Church of St. Pantaleon in Onkel. Uh, and I have good friends. The Falmers, uh, he is historian of the city and, uh, and archivist and so on and so forth. Uh, and so he helped me reestablish the, uh, the life of Pfefferkorn. Uh, uh, and uh, he was in Oko on the Rhine uh, until probably uh, when his sister died in, uh, in 1792. 
uh, at which time he moved to Siegburg, which is about 20 miles away, um, which is where his father's family, the Pfefferkorns, were all there, were prominent. Uh, his his great uncle was um, was mayor of the city for 36 years, and so on. So he was well connected in both cities, and uh, uh, and so on. I rec recreated that life. So I have four books about Pfefferkorn, and they are order mysteries because I wanted people to read about them because they could get the not only the history of an uh, interesting man and a very un unusual, uh, witty, observant, um, uh, eloquent individual, um, but they could get the history of the Jesuits and what happened to them. Uh, and despite the fact that he was without a job when he got home to his sister, um, he quickly um, uh, became known as somebody important, and so he got the job of being uh, the pastor, of course, uh, remained pastor, but uh, he was the auxiliary. And that is my story for the day. I, I have <laughs> talked long enough. Well, uh, just amazing. Just amazing. And uh, Pfefferkorn lives on. I think a big reason why it is you. Uh, just amazing job, Doc. And without further ado, let me uh, let me urge everyone to to tune in and actually binge listen to uh, our other shows, Doc's other shows on uh, Pfefferkorn. Uh, just an amazing job she's done. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on The Florence Weinberg Show. <laughs>